Hey everybody, welcome to The Blacklist, the show where we interview the elite. Today we have a special treat. We have my man, Andrew. Um, and this is the first time that I've ever met Andrew, but he has an amazing story. Um, and I'm really happy that you're here on the show. First off, I just want to express my gratitude and thanks to you and Influencer Press for having me here. All the goodwill, all the support really means a great deal to me. Thank you, dude. Thank you. So for the people that you know don't know who you are, right? give yourself an introduction. Who is Andrew? So first off, a broad concept that'll help people. I love helping people. Yeah. All right. Now, what I'm here to discuss is a way in which I help people or ways in which, which is as a coach, a consultant, and author of two books. What I specialize in is helping people avoid, mitigate, and adapt to crisis. Yeah. And you've had a couple of crises, right? Oof, yes, sir. So early in life, one in eighth grade and one in 11th, I had yeah. a couple of really severe snowboarding situations that were not so good. The second one was the most acute of the two. It was an acute mountain sickness that I had, and I was about six hours from death by the time that I made it to the ER. That is insane. And what about the first one? The first one was a laceration of my spleen and bruising of my kidneys, also snowboarding. You'd think I would never snowboard again, <laughs> but I didn't want to have that stuff decide my fate. So I got back on the saddle, so to speak, and again, you know, kept going. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I love that, um, you know, initially you were like, hey, I'm here to serve. Even from the moment you got here, right, you can tell that you're very genuine. You very much want to help people and serve. Um, why do you think that's so important to you? It's important to me because I feel that I've uh, been benefiting for many years from the legacies of extraordinary human beings. Yeah. Throughout my higher education, as well as coaches I've worked with in years since, they've given me a tremendous amount. Okay. So with that information, I would feel selfish if I wasn't doing more to help people. And especially what's happened with the pandemic. Yeah. I see it really as a collective trauma. So if, the, if you look at the, the world really as an individual, it's like that individual had a massive shock to its nervous system. Yeah. And we're all in there and people are trying to figure out how to orient and navigate through this thing. Yeah. So where I come in is I say, all right, well, I got a couple books, you know, I do my coaching, my consulting, I've done workshops, et cetera, but let me find a way to get those out to more people yeah. so that they know they're not alone first and foremost. And that's really leaning on cedars. That's about initiation and adapting to personal crisis. Okay. And then human maps, that's how to deal with collective crisis in institutions, corporations, uh, educational, it can also be a military. So yeah. I really want to help people, especially those of service who are out there serving others to know they're not alone and that I got love for them. And that's an easy point of entry on both books. Yeah, that's a, I love that. I love how you mentioned how the pandemic was almost in a way as a collective, we were all in crisis, yes, right? Sir. Yes, sir. Um, what did you do during that time frame to kind of help navigate you know, the waters for everybody else? Excellent. So what I was having to deal with was a pr pretty significant pivot, right? So for years, I'd had my private coaching business, and I really was, was focused on that. The consulting, not so much. Yeah. And what the pandemic allowed for was a redefinition where I started, you know, looking at things. I was like, wait, well, I also have, you know, this level of uh, executive mentoring that I do um, with the educational consulting and academic advising. Okay, I could branch that out. So what I started to do was to differentiate different services that had been baked in, in a sense, into my okay. coaching yep. to be able to serve people abroad, uh, you know, within a broader spectrum. And then with the two books, I was like, okay, well, human maps, like I got to get that out now. Yeah. You know, I, I'd worked on that for my doctoral dissertation. That's what it was at Columbia. And then I adapted that into a book for a broad readership. Yep. Um, also with Leaning on Cedars, I had had a publisher put that out years prior I wasn't satisfied with the deal and I'm very grateful to them. They were gracious to revert the rights. Yeah. So I was able to put that out on my own terms. So both Human Maps and Cedars, I put out on, uh, you know, through Kindle. Yeah. And I have full ownership and I'm able to help more people that way. Yeah. Take us through uh, both of those books. 
So why did you end up writing Cedars at first? And then, you know, human math. Love that. Um, so Cedars, <laughs> that's a funny story, actually. So Leaning on Cedars, that project began as a senior project in high school. I really wrote the bulk of that, bulk of that book between the ages of 17 and 21. Wow. And uh, it started in a funny way. So I was joking around. I was a really serious student. But for my senior project, I was kind of joking tongue in cheek. And I was saying to my mom, you're like, oh, maybe I'll raise a goat. Now, yeah. I know, I know yeah. that sounds ridiculous. And she's like, oh, come on. Like, that's not going to be fair to the dog. We had a dog. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what are we going to do with this goat when you go off to college? So she said, why don't you write a book? You know, and I got a lot of love and gratitude to my mother for that idea yeah. because she saw something there. And for me, the shocks of, of those two life-threatening experiences, especially the second one, gave me a lot of questions. You know, like I didn't know what really to make of that Ulysses. I was right. thinking to myself like, all right, well, uh, maybe a third one's going to happen. So at that time in my life, what I sought to do was to take as much of what I could of life and compress it into a story. Um, and I had these characters in my mind that were, I felt yeah. like, you know, in, in imploring me to do something. So in a sense, it was my life experience. It was also things that I studied. I researched, I traveled, I, you know, I learned from people all over the world and what I'd seen a lot of my peers going through. And I compressed that into the narrative, you know, fictional in nature yeah. that I feel is really an every man's story. I mean, we all come up against crises. Yep. We yep. all come up against our stuff. And especially during the pandemic, when we got to look at, you know, fear squarely in the face and say, what are we going to do with this thing? Yeah. And then we either breathe through it and adapt or we stay in that same pattern, right? So for right. me, it's to inhale hope, you know, breathe that in, exhale fear. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For, for people that haven't read the book and they want a brief synopsis, yes. what are some key points that you think, you know, should stand out if somebody's reading, if somebody would have read it? So I think what they'll get pretty, pretty quickly in the beginning is that there's a very uh, significant philosophical framework that's being put forward. And so the book begins looking at the question of destiny. You know, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, a lot of people say, okay, well, you know, no matter what I do, you know, there's some other plan and, you know, I just kind of am along for the ride. Right. Now, what that often does is that puts what's called in psychology, the locus of control outside the individual, right? So they're kind of reacting, so to speak. So what I say is, you know, in the book is figuring out how to become in contact with that, how to meet up with your destiny. And that's what the protagonist, Jason, goes through is he ends up really meeting up with that through this ordeal he suffers through in the Colorado Rockies. Now, what that then does is it's, okay, now I'm responsible, right? When the locus of control is internalized, you become yeah. the agent in control of your life because you assume full responsibility for yourself and all of what you do, yep. which is immensely powerful. And that's the shift a lot of people need right now with all of what's happened with the pandemic you look at addiction issues, you look at ODs, you look at people committing suicide. I mean, there's some horrible stuff yeah. because people have felt powerless so often. So yeah. what I'm doing is I'm helping people empower themselves using that book as a blueprint, as a catalyst that emotionally they can go through that, you know, kind of death and resurrection process, letting right. go of the victim narrative and then embracing the empowered narrative that is really about empathy and love and connection. Yeah. Why do you think people stay there for a while? That's another great question. So they stay there because it's what they can tolerate often, and it's also what they know. So if you look at psychology, you see yeah. the first six to seven years of life, that's really where a lot of your, um, your, your character traits, et cetera, are formed because nurture becomes nature, right? Neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm. So in those first critical developmental years, what ends up happening is that personality is essentially formed, yep. and then you just reenact it throughout the rest of your life, <laughs> okay? So what ends up happening is when you put a person into a crisis situation, right? They end up reenacting. It could be fight, 
flee or freeze. Those are your basic responses, right? Yeah. If you look at military training, like they, when, when you get uh, broken down and they do that with basic training, like they get you into that kind of primitive, like raw response state. Yeah. And then you get trained and built back up from that. So okay. they, so they retrain how, they retrain how you should be in the military, essentially? In a sense. Now, I got, I want to just say, I got a great deal of, of love and respect for anybody of service, especially yeah. law enforcement, military. You know, I know people on a variety of levels, and I, I just, I really, really appreciate them. They're, they're, you know, there's so many wonderful people out there putting their lives on the line so you and I can do this, right? right? In, our, yep. in, in the ways that we do. And I got, I just want to express my gratitude if anybody watches this. In law enforcement, thank you so much for your service, okay? So what they prepare you to do is how to thrive in crisis, right? Because you have yeah. to execute. You can't be in, oh my God, oh my God, I don't know what to do. No, you got to be able to pivot, boom, and go into action. Yep. And, you know, if you think of an officer, right? Even, you know, a, a, a police officer, they have so many different logic trees in their minds, right? They say, okay, here's the event. Now, do I, if I do this, then I got to go here. Right. If I do this, I got to go there, right? So they're having to make those calculations in a way that is massively powerful, and yep. we don't, in my opinion, not enough respect for them is out there, right? We got to really <laughs> keep changing that. Yeah. Um, but it's that kind of thing where in the face of crisis, rather than flee or freeze or just fight it in some way that's reactive, you slow everything down, you focus, yeah. and then step by step by step, you identify the correct pathway forward, where again, here's the origin point, here's the event, the incident. Now, what do we do? What's the correct protocol? Now, what do you do to slow down? Because I, um, you know, I, I, just to give you some context, I was interviewing somebody last week. Yes. And they were talking about something probably completely different, but they still mentioned the same thing. When you are in a reactive state, it's very hard to do anything correctly. Yes. Uh, but when you slow down, you see things as they should be. Mm -hmm. And then like you said, okay, what's the next step here, right? You, so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what I love is see things as they should be. Now I'm going to tie into that. Yeah. We don't usually see the world as it is. We see it as we are. All right. So what ends up happening is we're dealing with projection. So people will see an event. I could meet you, you can meet me. And I might say or do something, you might say or do something. Then you have this evaluation. I have this evaluation. Yeah. What often ends up happening are gaps in information. That's one of the biggest problems in life. Yeah. Because what happens in those gaps, assumptions, fears, all kinds of things get projected and dumped into it that could be completely baseless and incorrect. Yeah. So the Agreed. key then, right, in crisis points is you have to slow it down to say, what are the facts? What's my empirical data? And I say this, like I have a strong research background, you know, doctor of education, Columbia educated. Yeah. You know, what I look at is, okay, what's my data? If I'm working with an individual, they're essentially my data set. Right, yep. Right, what are they saying? What happened? That's usually the great question to ask. And I've been trained in this, right? I've received phenomenal training over the years. Like, please don't get me wrong. I'm here because of all the great people that helped me get here. Yeah. Okay, so what happened? Okay, who, what, where, when, why? You ask those basic journalistic questions and establish a precedent for something. Yep, yep. Right? And then from there, you get people back into what really is going on versus all of the projections, you know, cognitively. So psychological, psychodrama, that kind of stuff, emotional froth and whatever comes up. Yeah. So you bring people back into the correct context to establish meaning. So it's no longer a rupture, right? If you think of trauma, okay? What a traumatic event is, is basically a rupture of the continuity and the flow of life. And that's yep. how you look at things psychoanalytically. So then in order to get that person back into that continuity, you got to figure out how to integrate that by processing and resolving that trauma. Yeah. Otherwise it gets reenacted and reenacted. And it's so sad to me 
And it gets passed on generationally as well, which is like the most tragic thing in so yeah. many ways. So, so powerful. So how does it look like when somebody ends up hiring you? What's the, <laughs> what's it, you know, how do you take yeah. them yeah. from where they are to the transformation? I love that question. So uh, first off, I just got to say your questions are phenomenal. I just want to take Thank a little you. moment to say that. And I really, again, appreciate you for what you're doing. So people typically come to me when I'm doing my coaching work where they've tried everything and it hasn't worked. Yeah. Right now I've worked with uh, a client, you know, somebody very, very high level Wall Street executive, uh, worked with someone in their family. I've worked uh, with, with doctors, you know, MDs, people in their family. I've worked with lawyers, people, you know, their family. So usually they've exhausted many options. And what does that look like? What is exhausting the options? Look like? So that looks like they've gone to a therapist. They've gone to an MD. They've tried, uh, it could be some behavioral therapy. It could have been any number of things, nutritionist, yeah. personal trainer. And for whatever reason, it's just not working. Okay. So with the coaching that I was trained in, these are based in very powerful breathing and movement exercises, which essentially help to change uh, what I call an emotional tolerance threshold. Now, what that is, is you have all these ideas and capacities intellectually. We all do. Yeah. But our bodies, as defined by what happens in those crucial developmental years of six to seven, right? Our bodies really are what dictate what we can or cannot do in so many words, right? So what I work with with those exercises is to help people improve their emotional regulation capabilities, thereby improving also their cognitive functioning. And that's through the body. Yeah. Dang, that is powerful. Hey, man, I'm fortunate. All how, right. How, yeah, long, yeah. how long does this transformation take? I mean, obviously, there's no like on average, yeah, you know, yeah. at least I don't think there is, but yeah, because um, it's probably different for everybody. But, you know, what's your experience? How long does a transformation take uh, to, 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 you know, to make it permanent? Well, I don't know if it's permanent necessarily, right? What I would say is there's always a lifelong journey. You know, Plato talks right. about how we're never finished. You know, we're yeah. always in a state of becoming, we're, all, we're always learning. And I think that's a crucial way to look at things. Even the, the gentleman who was the sponsor uh, for my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation, he said to me, the doctorate's a license to learn, <laughs> which I think is brilliant because it's yeah. like, if we're not, you know, if we don't have humility, we're not going to learn much. We yep. get stuck real quick and we get blinded by things. So um, as far as how long it takes, typically I've worked with clients for a year or longer. But what I'll say is that I'm also uh, adapting more given the pandemic, you know, with, with looking at doing more workshops, yep. speaking, et cetera to find alternative frameworks for getting the message across and helping people in an easier way. Because the work as I was trained in it over about seven years was hard, man. <laughs> yeah. like, like it was like a boot camp kind of training over years and years and years. Uh, and the person that trained me was brilliant in knowing how to help in so many ways. And it was tough. Like, I'm not going to say, oh yeah, that was all a bunch of fun. Right, Like, right. No, 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 no. That was really hard. Um, but I'm grateful for all the good there. You know, differences aside, I'm grateful for all the good that came out of that. And I'm about leverage, right? So if a client comes to me and they say, all right, well, they got this pain in their shoulder, for instance. All yeah. right, let me work on that. Let me loosen that up. Let me get that processing better. And then, okay, let's work on some other things. It might be a matter of months. It might be longer. I don't know. Right, right. Okay, so yeah. it's really just, it's always up to the individual. I'm a big proponent of free will. I think that's crucial and respecting and honoring that with people. Yeah. You want to work with me? Great. You don't, you don't. You know, we'll, we'll go our separate ways. But of, overall, I will say that based on that drive to be uh, really motivated by data and outcomes, like I'm about results. You know, it's one thing to say a lot of things that are interesting and inspirational. I'm about show me the raw data. You know, yeah. if I'm not transforming your life, if I'm not getting you these significant outcomes and wins professionally, academically, personally, physically, socially, whatever it may be, don't hire me. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, 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 say, let's both save ourselves the time. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. Um, and and tie us into now the second book, right? Yes. Because, um, what you know, give us a little again brief synopsis about that. Unless you know you kind of already spoken about it, you know, right now. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want to real quick just touch on one more thing about leaning on cedar. So. What's really nice is a price point option for people. So I do excursions as part of my coaching work. I haven't uh, done one since January 2020 when this pandemic, you know, wow, yeah. really started after that. So I've gone as close as West Point, as far as Turkey. My last trip was down to Patagonia, Chile. Wow. All right. Now those are intensives which accelerate the coaching process. Yeah. All right. Now, leaning on cedars is like in many ways going on an excursion with me, except you don't have to pay the same amount. Right, yeah, right? yeah. So that's an easier barrier or point of well, entry. That's a good analysis, in fact. You oh, know? totally, totally. Like, because, yeah, yeah. Because, go ahead. Yeah, because, uh, you know, somebody can go through that journey um, mm-hmm. without necessarily having to go through it, you know, in person. Um, right. And if you don't mind sharing, how is it like in person and, and what's the price point? Uh, so I would say if I were to do one right now, uh, maybe 300 per day, but that's very low. Like the thing is, yeah. I'm also rethinking some things in my business. I'm scaling, yeah. you know, all of what y'all are doing with, with, uh, with influencer press, like, yep. you know, we're going to figure this stuff out together. I'm also you know, looking at Grant Cardone. I'll say that yeah, I'm looking yeah. at Grant Cardone as an option with something with him for, for also helping me build out marketing, et cetera. Yeah. But the key for me is scaling in a way that's also sustainable. Yeah. And that is continuing to provide a full spectrum, right? So, or like, for example, let, let's say it's even 500 a day. Yeah. Right? Okay. Well, you could get leaning on cedars way cheaper. Right, just go on yeah. Amazon or Human Maps, the second book. So yeah. I just wanted to touch on that real quick about the excursions. Yeah. So back to Human Maps now. That book was uh, the doctoral dissertation at Columbia. It started um, in many ways through the Moretti Pedagogical Consulting Group. Now what that, is that? That is in the name of Dr. Frank A. Moretti, uh, who was co-founder and executive director of the Columbia Center for New Media Teaching and Learning. Okay. He'd also been associate headmaster at the Dalton School, phenomenal human being. So uh, he pointed me to be an assistant with that group. And we were looking at, in his words, decolonizing the core curriculum at Columbia University. No small yeah. feat. That's a big deal. Yep. And he was a titan in his field, in, in fields, I should say, in many ways. I was working with him at the intersection of philosophy and technology, right? So like, how does technology change how we think, feel, and act? Yeah. And what do we do about that, right? How do we stay human in a world increasingly saturated by technology? Yep, right. Yeah. So what I was doing there with other you know top students. So this was um, straddled between the Columbia PhD program in communication at the journalism school and Teachers College where I was based, and we were developing a course that we entitled "Inquiry into the Future of the Human Species." All right. <laughs> okay. I know. Yeah. Mellow title. Yeah. Um, and so the whole purpose of that was to help people leverage the power of a classics-based core curriculum. Right. Think you know, Homer, Herodotus, Thucydides, Plato, Aristotle, you know, these, these, these powerful titans that created narratives, which I called human maps, right? So yeah. when you read those texts, they're teaching about what it is to be human. And the, and the core at Columbia started as a war issues course to help people prepare for war, for the battlefield. Yeah. They then had a peace issues course to help people come back and reintegrate into society at peace. They combined the two to create the course Contemporary Civilization. Yeah. All right? So... Uh, and that was the first really like formal core course, which is still taught to this day. So what we were doing was, was I was basically putting the question ultimately, so what? Like, so what about you going through this powerful core based, you know, curriculum when you go off to do this job or that and you forget all about it, you know? Yeah. So what I, what I was working with, with people was 
how do we take the power of that and leverage it and apply it using new media technologies as tools to envision and create projects in response to current and emerging global crisis so that people have these different ways of knowing how to adapt. It could be a novel. It could be a short story. It could be a film. It could be any number of things that students would produce. Yeah. Right? And then, okay, you go work at you know, Wall Street or you go work wherever, but you got that in your back pocket. You know how to handle this. Now, what is the, one of the biggest problems right now? People have not known how to adapt to this pandemic. Yeah. Right? So I think this thing was ahead of its time, and Frank was, was visionary. You know, and, and sad to say he ended up passing, but he ended up putting me in charge of the consulting group. And I, I love him so much for this. He said to me, you always, you got to leave people free. You know, it wasn't like we must do this. We must do that. It was that we were all coming together. We were creating something beautiful to help, right? To help people and serve humanity. And for years, I just sat on that book, sat on that book. And then when the pandemic hit, I was like, I got to put this thing out, yeah. right? So that's when I made the shift from dissertation into book. I got a lovely endorsement from a gentleman, uh, Douglas Cooper, who used to teach at Harvard. Brilliant guy. I think he's even a member of Mensa. And, you know, he was, I mean, a man of the heart. I mean, like, this is the thing. What I loved about so many of the people that I, that I got to know at Columbia was they were like poets of color in a black and white world. <laughs> All right. And those yeah. are my people, man. Like, when I get out there, like, I want to talk to people that, that are heart-centered. Yeah. Like, yeah, they're smart. Yeah, they're driven. But they really care. Because to me, the most important thing is that we uplift each other. Right. All right. Right. You know, it's like, if we're not serving each other, we're not in service of the right energies, the right frequency. It's like low yeah. frequency stuff. And a lot of people get trapped in that because they don't understand the signs and symbols of culture and politics, especially capitalism. Yeah. You know, and that gets all whacked out. That's a whole other story though. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. I think, uh, I mean, I think right now they're saying hi to you. <laughs> Um, but I, yeah, I think right now, like people are, uh, um, you know, kind of stuck in this, in this trap of like, maybe, you know, I'm working too much or whatever that they, they don't, I, I don't think they're in tune with their emotions. I don't think they can totally. think clearly enough to the point where like, okay, I have to serve. I should care. You know, how do you, how do you take yourself out of, um, uh, and this is a, such a cliche to, to say, but like out of the matrix where, you know, the matrix I, uh, assume is like people are just doing the day to day, you know, yep. they don't have time to think of anything else. Brilliant question. So what you're asking ties into a key, key uh, concept, allegory, put forth by Plato in Plato's Republic, which is the allegory of the cave. So to boil this down very, very simply, yeah. there's people that are shackled and chained in, in, in the cave, and, and they're looking at a, a wall, and on that wall there are shadows projected. So behind them is a fire, and there's somebody passing these different objects in front of the fire, which casts the shadows. Yep, okay. So now think about television, think about smartphones, all of this stuff, right? Yep. So what we got are these copies of the real things, not the things themselves. So what we end up getting in, indoctrinated into a lot are these signs and symbols that are mythologies. They're simply not true. And if you yeah. think of people in poverty, it's lower socioeconomic status, right? They're internalizing this stuff. They're watching the news. It's pumping people full of fear. Yeah. You know, so when you're in fear, you're in the opposite, in my view, of love. It's not love and hate. It's love and fear. Yeah. Okay, so to try to get people out of that, what Plato talks about is it's a dialectic. So that, what that basically means is, okay, you got the people that are in the conventions, right? The social norms, all that stuff, they're highly emotionally, impulsively kind of regulated in the cave and controlled versus the people outside the cave, right? Which is basically like scientists. Yeah, yeah. You want to look at things analytically, break it down based on facts and data and evidence, not, well, I have this feeling and thought, therefore it must be true. Like, right. you're like no, we got we to see if empirically- 
the data supports it. Yeah. Okay. So that whole process of getting out of the cave, not something people enjoy, right? No. I mean, like, how would you like it? Or how would I like it if someone comes to, hey, you know what? You're indoctrinated. You're <laughs> believing a whole bunch of nonsense. We got to deprogram you, actually. I mean, like, what? Yeah. I mean, in fact, that, that um, I don't know if you, if you know, but that kind of happened, I think, similarly with, like, Andrew Tate. He did a lot of that stuff, but he hmm. did it very, uh, you know who, you know who I'm talking about? No? No. Oh, well, well, we'll scrap that. But Another I, Andrew. You know, All right. Yeah. Yeah, basically, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it's true. Like, a lot of people, they're stuck. And then, you know, if you, if you say something along those yeah. lines, it's like, uh, I've been living like this my whole life, you know? It's like, right. and it's just, it's offensive. Right. right. Which ties back into that earlier point, right? So that conditioning in those crucial developmental years, six to seven, yeah. right? Especially you put someone in crisis, boom, you're going to see who they are as they were conditioned back then. Crazy. Yeah. Right, man? So it's like, it's so simple. It's so simple when you look at it. When you look at the psychological, you know, uh, precedent there yeah. that, you know, people don't necessarily see. But what I would like to say is this, there's this beautiful story, right? So it goes like this. In hell, everybody's really, really hungry. There's an abundance of food and they have these really long spoons, like spoons that are massive and they're too big and they're selfish and they're miserable and they're hungry. Yeah. And they try to feed themselves, but they're selfish and, and the, so they, they can't. They can't get the spoon in their mouth, so they starve and misery. Instead of? Instead of in heaven, same parameters. They feed each other. Yeah. Now, when I talk about business deals with people, and I feel like this should apply to all relations in general with people, I don't want to enter into something that's a seesaw. Like you're upside, I'm downside, or I'm upside, you're downside. Like that's bad. That's bad karma. That's bad energy. Like I want everybody winning. Yeah. And so when we do that, right? And, and then the story, they, they feed each other. Okay. Yeah. That's how we uplift ourselves. So if we're going to get people out of the cave, it has to be through a kind of educational architecture and framework. That's what human maps is. It gives the framework for, it could be military. It could be uh, higher education. It could be, you know, high schools. It could be a whole corporations. I mean, the applicability is so broad. And I've worked with or been in touch with people in each of those areas, you know, that resonate with this. Yeah. You know, yeah. they've been, they're connected in their ways. You know, there's somebody I know who's, you know, was involved at a very high level in military and like they love leaning on cedars. They, they got human maps. I hope they read it. I'd love to hear their <laughs> thoughts on it, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's about that. It's like about war, life and death, like the most basic elements of what it is to be human and how do we show up, which is in crisis because that shows us who we are. Yeah, I love that, dude. So, so what's next for you? What's, what, are you going to write another book? What's, oh, what's now that's, that's a great question. So I'm actually working on another one. Uh, I've mostly written my content and then right now I'm looking for who my partner's going to be because I want to have, Either, well, there's a couple ways. Yeah. One, if I'm going to write the other content myself, I probably want to get the Series 65, okay? So yeah. I get, you know, become an FA. But um, I have some people I'm considering, really one mainly I'm saying at this time, that I think could be an amazing partner because what that book is. Now, this this one <laughs> is probably going to, you know, ruffle some feathers. So this book, uh, what I'm doing in this book is I'm helping people uh, avoid the debt trap of higher education. So yeah. So somebody I work with for many years says to me, the smartest thing that I did with all my higher education was how little I paid, all right? Now, let me just give you a quick summary here. Yeah. Undergrad, I had a big scholarship. My first master's, I had a full ride. My second master's, I transferred uh, credit so I could do it in two years instead of one. So let me just slow it down a little bit more. Yeah. All right? Started my first master's while still doing my undergrad, okay? Uh, my parents helped a little bit with undergrad, but mostly that was just me, you know, whatever. I, I had a big scholarship and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. First master's, I did it in one year instead of two, right? 
um, free of charge, rolled those credits into the second master's. Second master's I did in roughly one year instead of two or longer. Yeah. Rolled all those credits from the first two masters into my doctorate. I knocked out my Damn. dissertation by bringing in a report I'd done years earlier for a, uh, I think two to $3 million commission. It was at educational testing service. There was a report I produced. I brought that in as a chapter, combined it with the consulting work I had done at Columbia. And I knocked that thing out in about a year. So I graduated with a bachelor's, two masters and a doctorate, the latter two degrees from yeah. Columbia. And I spent, now get this, right? I spent, while well, I paid down a little bit of debt in school, my parents had it, helped out, as I said, minimally, you know, early on, and I appreciate that. I spent roughly the amount of one master's, like debt, debt average. Like, so when I graduated, my debt, average debt was yeah. about one master's. Damn. So that book is about how I did that. So it's three parts. One, alternative pathways through higher ed, figuring out what makes the most sense for you. It might be deferring. It might be going to community college, transferring, whatever that is, so that yeah. you can maximize education and minimize the cost. Secondly, how to get this whole thing to pay off, right? You got to have money going in different directions, not just sinking it all into the, the degree. I think that's a huge waste of money. So I say, all right, get money towards retirement, get money towards a house, have an emergency fund or health fund, God forbid something like this pandemic happens. Yeah. All right. And then the third part is how to parlay all of that achievement educationally into a successful and, and this is crucial, fulfilling career, right? You're not just making a bunch of money and being super successful. You also got to have love and fulfillment. It's got to be gratifying. There's plenty of people that are slaves to success and money and they're miserable. Yeah, yeah. That, so I want to give everybody everything. So that, that's what the book gets into. Uh, I'm not going to reveal the title at this time. <laughs> it's an epic one. I will say that. I got to also make sure I can have that title, but my gosh, yeah. like that, that one's like, whew. That's been, that's been quite an adventure working on that one. Well, that's good, dude. Uh, send it to me when you're done. But I appreciate yes, yes. you being on the show. Where can people find you? So they can get my, my, uh, my website is one of the easiest. So that is Andrew, letter C, S-H-U-R-T-L-E-F-F, -F, like fun friend, yep. not to mistake it with S-S, dot com. Um, you can also look me up on Facebook. You can look me up on Instagram. Um, LinkedIn, I really like. That's probably my preference there. So just same thing, or you could just do Andrew Shirtliff. I think that should come up. Okay. Um, and uh, I think those are probably my best outlets. And then, you know, you guys know more about this stuff. You know, yeah. you're, you're the, you know, the masters of this stuff, but yeah. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate you, Influencer Press, again, for having me here. Thank you all. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.